Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is March the 9th, 2021. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to try some experiment when it comes to the form of this show. I did this interview earlier today, and I'm going to try and splice the interview into my commentary. As I said, it's March the 9th, 2021. And as all too often in American uh, contemporary history, unfortunately, uh, the headlines today are dominated by the relationship between the police and the rest of America. Uh, Today, the big story is jury selection is getting underway in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. It was, of course, uh, Chauvin, uh, who is the former uh, officer, Minnesota officer, who is accused of killing George Floyd. Um, the person I wanted to talk to, or the person we, we are speaking to today, is one of America's leading authorities on the relationship between the police uh, and uh, the population. Uh, she is Rosa Brooks. She's the author of a new book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. And Rosa, in a sense, went undercover. She her, her, her day job is as a professor of law at Georgetown University, but she joined the D.C. police to experience what that was like as, uh, as a civilian. So I began uh, in my conversation with Rosa asking her about the title of her book, Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, The quote at the beginning of the book, uh, which always says a lot in my view about a book, is from Dylan's great 1974 song, Tangled Up in Blue. We always did feel the same. We just saw it from a different point of view. Tangled Up in Blue. So... I asked, I, I kicked off my interview with Rosa by asking her why. Yeah, you know, it's a great song. And the title of the song seemed to so perfectly capture my own feelings about being tangled up in this world of policing, you know, partly out of it, partly in it. And that particular quote seemed to capture for me some of what is so complicated about policing that I think, I think there is more common ground often than people think between what police officers would like to have happen to policing and what critics of policing would like to see happen to policing. But we're, we're sort of trapped in, trapped in different places and it's hard to get to that seeing it the same way. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Rosa Brooke. She's a very distinguished writer and thinker on law and politics. She's also well known as the daughter of Barbara Ehrenreich, one of America's leading left-wing thinkers and activists, uh, a lifetime full-time rebel. Uh, Rosa herself was named both after Rosen Luxemburg, the 
German communist revolutionary who was murdered by the Weimar police and by Rosa Parks, the, uh, the Alabama African-American activist who led the fight against um, uh, discrimination in Alabama uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, so I asked Rosa um, whether or not her book, Tangled Up in Blue, is also, in a sense, a rebellion uh, against not only her mother, but the idea of the left and its fetishization of uh, an anti-police um, an anti-police ideology. Here's what she said. Oh, that's a hard question. And it's, it's one I really struggled with as I was working on the book. Um, I do think that to some extent I was rebelling against a, a tendency that can be there on the left as much as on the right to dehumanize those we we don't like, uh, those we think are doing bad things. It's, it's easier to say the police are brutal racist pigs than it is to try to grapple with what is it about policing that shapes police behavior? You know, how much are we responsible for that as well as police officers themselves? And 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 I I've spent my career working on all sorts of different issues, human rights abuses, terrible atrocities, much, much worse than what we typically see in this country. You know, brutal civil wars where people are, are being systematically mutilated, ethnic cleansing, genocide. And one of the things that has always struck me, and I think this is something that people who study atrocities and genocide will all say, is that almost no one wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'd like to inflict some suffering for no good reason today on other people. People tell themselves stories. They come up with stories to say, this is why I have to do what I'm doing. And if you want to understand the dynamics that can lead to terrible atrocities, you can't come at it by just saying, oh, those people are not like us. They're different. They're brutal. They're pigs. They're sadists. You have to come at it by saying, in fact, these are people who are just like us. So we need to try to understand how could ordinary people come to think that this makes sense? If you want to, if you want to stop it first, you need to understand that. I was also intrigued by Rosa's dedication. She dedicates the book both to her mother and, and I'm quoting her here in the dedication, for the men and women of the DC Metropolitan Police Department who do what we ask them to do. And to some at least, this might seem a contradiction. How, she, how can she dedicate a book which is in many ways both critical and also a defense of the police to both her mother, uh, a lifetime critic of the police, and to the police itself. Her, I found her response intriguing. But I'm not, I wasn't trying to write a book that was acceptable to either the DC police or to my mother. I was trying to write a book that was honest. Uh, and that meant of necessity that there are things in it that people aren't going to like. There are things in it that some of my friends in the DC police department didn't like, and there are things in it that my mother didn't like. There are certainly things in the book that uh, the police won't like. Um, we, of course, don't like Derek Chauvin. I don't think he has a defender in the world, including his own family. Uh, his behavior was utterly appalling, and I hope, like most of us, that he will end, end his life in jail as, as a murderer. 
but I asked uh, I asked Rosa about the origins of this. What's gone wrong? I asked her with the American police and and is it an account of of their training? Are they poorly trained in terms of of of, of dealing with uh, with with innocent civilians? Not an easy answer because it's a lot of different things. Uh, I think that police training is part of the problem. I think in most jurisdictions, police training remains modeled on a, a sort of a parody of military boot camp, kind of a 1980s. If you remember the movie Full Metal Jacket, it's sort of seems to be modeled on that notion of Marine Corps boot camp. And even the military boot camp isn't like that anymore. But but policing, police training is sort of frozen in time. And I think I think that is a big part of it, quite frankly, that that if police training emphasizes, you know, don't speak unless you're spoken to, the only acceptable answers are yes, sir, no, sir, uh, or I was wrong, sir, I messed up, sir. Uh, you know, if you get to be yelled at by people with more power, if people with more power think it's okay to say that if you made a mistake or said something they don't like, you get physical punishment, you know, get down and give me, you know, 20 push-ups or whatever it may be, or push-ups until you drop from exhaustion. You're going to have police officers who take away from that experience the idea that it is okay for people with power to shout and give orders at people who left less power, and that it's okay for people with power to inflict physical pain on those who don't obey them or those who make a mistake. And I don't think every police officer takes that message away. Needless to say, policing would be a whole lot worse, even much more violent if every officer did take that away. But I think inevitably some officers do take that away, that the Derek Chauvin's or whatever, however you pronounce his last name, I think it's so ironic, by the way, that Chauvin, of course, uh, means the root of the word is chauvinist, right? Um, but anyway, that's a whole other story. You know, there, there are going to be people like him who are going to take away the idea that that's the way the world works, that, you know, you, you kick down, you kiss up. Many of you will know that uh, Tangled Up in Blue is is not Rosa Parks's first book. Uh, her her, her award-winning book uh, from a few years ago, her Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon, is in some ways, I guess, a, a, a similar critical analysis of, of how the military has taken over uh, American life. And I asked Rosa um, why it is, and, 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 I, and, and, and this is, I think, one of the great questions of American life, is why Americans fetishize the army and hate the police? That's a really good question. And and I mean, they are tangled up together. The, the origins of the first professional American police departments in the middle of the 19th century emerged very much out of the Civil War, that many departments were headed by Civil War veterans. They were explicitly modeled on military organizational structures. The uniforms of many early police departments were surplus Civil War uniforms. So that that, that history of entanglement goes very deep. Why why do we have different attitudes towards police and military? I've, you know, it's interesting. I was actually just thinking about this last night. I was thinking about the issue of dehumanization that, that I talked about earlier and how that doesn't solve any problems. And I was thinking about the the the, the trope. The, it's really a myth, actually, that Vietnam War veterans were were spat upon when they returned home, and no one has actually ever documented anyone actually being spat upon. But no question about it, the anti-war protests during the Vietnam movement uh, often vilified soldiers, many of whom were conscripts as you know, baby killers, war criminals. Um, and I think at least on the American left, there has been a real sense of soul searching since that time of, wait a second, 
Let's think about the class dynamics at work during the war. Let's think about how many of those soldiers were working class conscripts and how many of the anti-war protesters were kids who had gotten college deferments themselves. And the vilification of soldiers for doing what they were ordered to do while people had the luxury of standing outside that criticized them. And, and, and the, the attention turned, I think, quite rightly away from vilifying soldiers and more towards saying, hey, what were the U.S. policies and the, the broader societal attitudes that enabled and led to the atrocities of the Vietnam War? I think on top of that, there was such a backlash from middle America. You know, how dare you spit on these conscripts that, that one of the lessons that the, the Democratic Party and the left took away from that is, oh boy, we have to outdo the right in saying, we love the troops, you know, we support the troops. We may oppose this war, but we love the troops. And we haven't seen that with policing, which, which you're absolutely right. And it's a really fascinating question, why not? Because there are tremendous parallels, you know, one of which is that policing has historically been and remains today one of the primary routes for upward mobility, particularly for African-Americans. Um, you know, that just as the military has been a source of upward mobility, that the people who join police departments, they don't tend to be people who went to Yale and went to Stanford. They tend to be working class kids, whether they're black or white or, or some other ethnicity or, or racial background. And it's a route out of, out of economic insecurity for them. They then do things that, just as in the Vietnam War, quite frankly, we, the people, tell them to do. And, and that's the reason for that dedication. I think, I think when we criticize policing, although there are plenty of things that police departments can change, the training being one of them, most of what is wrong with American policing, or at least a great deal of what is wrong with American policing, if we want to understand it, we, we need to take a hard look in the mirror because we're the ones who elect the people who make the laws that we then tell police officers to enforce and then are outraged at the results, the predictable results. We the people, uh, we look in the mirror, according to Rosa, and we see ourselves. But according to Malcolm Gladwell in his new book, Talking to Strangers, one of the biggest problems uh, in policing America is the breakdown of language uh, between the police and ordinary American citizens. So Talking to Strangers, Gladwell's new book, is about language itself and the misuses and abuses of language. Um, so I asked, uh, I asked uh, Rosa about this, uh, whether, whether the real problem was one of language, whether we can put everything down to That's the linguistic important. problem. I mean, language is the, the sea in which we human fish are swimming all the time. Um, and when we talk past each other, it makes it very, very hard to talk in a serious way or a useful way about different kinds of problems. And, and not so much about language, but something you said earlier, I, I do think one of the core messages of the book is Police officers enforce laws that they didn't create in a social context that they can't do a heck of a lot to change. And if there are things that we don't like that police do, and there are lots of things that we don't like that police do, we need to look in the mirror too. You know, we need to think, okay, police arrest people for trivial offenses we don't think they should be arresting them for. Guess what? You know, we're the ones who voted for the people who passed laws criminalizing those trivial offenses. Long sentences, selective prosecution, 
those things are beyond the control of police officers themselves, but they're not beyond our collective control. And I do think one of the overall messages of the book is recognize that police officers are humans like us, that they operate within a system that they don't fully control, they only control it partially. And that if we want to change their behavior, rather than saying, you're terrible people, we would do a whole lot better to focus on changing that system. Rose's book is extremely honest, not only about the police, but also about her own um, challenges in, in, in becoming a policewoman. She acknowledges that she wasn't really that good at it. It's an incredibly hard business to master, particularly for a 40-year-old a uh, law professor. Um, and she also acknowledged that it's an almost impossible profession to master for anybody. Uh, because of the uh, because of the the um, the contradictions in what we demand uh, of our of our uh, of our police people, you know, part of it is simply because I was a part timer and I'm kind of a klutz, and you know, I'm never going to be the best. I so as a woman in my 40s doing this, I was never going to be the fastest runner or the strongest person, or uh, you know. It's hard to learn new skills, for it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks. Um, um, so part of it was that, just that I didn't think I was particularly good at it. But but part of it, and the, the part that actually gave me some solace when I was feeling like, oh, God, you know, I'm not that great at this, was the realization that nobody is a very good police officer because policing is essentially impossible at this point. I mean, we do ask police officers to do so many different and contradictory jobs. We want them to be warriors, we want them to be protectors, we want them to be medics and mediators and social workers and mentors. And any one of those jobs is really, really hard to do well. And to try to do all of them within the space of a single shift, nobody can do all of those things well. And that was sort of my gradual realization was that even the the most the best police officers I knew, the people who were incredibly dedicated, really thoughtful, really compassionate, really smart. It's it's almost impossible to do it well because we we place so many contradictory demands on policing, which which in turn I, I actually think is what gets us to common ground between police officers and their critics. You know, the the defund the police movement. Uh, I think the rhetoric is alienating to a lot of cops. But if you push beyond that rhetoric and say, talk about the things that you do that you don't think you should be doing because you're not good at it, you're not trained for it. You know, talk about the services that you wish were there to make what you do more effective when you're doing what you think you should be doing. Then you get into a conversation about the ways in which we have, we have disinvested in so many other services and how impossible that makes policing. And I think that's the conversation that then leads you to hey, can we work together to rethink what we mean by public safety and to think about the kinds of investments we need to make in the future? Uh, one of the other things I love about the book is that while it's not aggressively policy-oriented in terms of reforming the police, it does suggest that becoming, if you like, a, a citizen policewoman, which is essentially what Rosa became as a way of understanding the challenges and problems of policing in America, is a good thing. So I asked uh, Rosa uh, of this uh, uh, idea of uh, citizen police. Is it a good thing? Should everyone become a policeman? Should everyone do it for a month or two? Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, I do actually um, 
I do think that understanding more about policing can be really useful to people. One of the things that I do at Georgetown Law, when I was teaching uh, last spring, I was teaching a criminal procedure course, um, and I gave my students as an extra credit option, uh, they could do police ride-alongs. Most police departments have a program where you can simply ride in a police car for a shift and see what, see what it's like. Um, and you know, you're not being a police officer, you're just an observer, but you're seeing what the officers see. And I gave the students a bunch of different choices because I didn't want students to feel like the only way to get extra credit was to do something that maybe they had political issues with. Um, but quite a lot of the students did choose the police ride-alongs and I asked them to write short reaction papers talking about you know, what they observed and what their thoughts were. And it really was pretty extraordinary. Um, the number of students who said, I had no idea it was like that. You know, I thought it was all car chases and screaming at people and shooting at people. And I had no idea how much of policing is, is dealing with humans and often really intractable problems that police don't have the tools to deal with, but they're trying, you know, it, and, and it was very, very striking to me. I mean, just as I've always believed quite deeply that any judge who sentences people for crimes ought to have to spend at least 24 hours in prison get a sense of what that's like. Uh, I do think that if we want to talk about policing, we should have some sense of what it's like on that side as well. Um, I, you know, I, I believe in national service. I wish we had a national service program in this country. And I think it would be terrific to have a national service program in which policing was one of the options. I think that the less we, the less we allow policing to be a kind of insular culture, the more we open it up, including to people who are critical, who have new ideas, the healthier it will be for all of us. A uh, couple of months ago, we had uh, Alex uh, Vitale on, on the show. He's been a big critic of the police. And I asked Vitale about what Biden should be doing about policing. Uh, Vitale wrote the book, uh, The End of the Police. Uh, so I asked uh, Rosa the same question. What should... Uh, what should the policy uh, of the Biden administration be when it comes to the police? Oh, you know, I think I think that the legislation passed by the House uh, a few days ago, this week, whenever it was, is, is a really good start. Um, I do think Biden is right that the conversation should not be about defunding the police. I think that's just as I think to take another parallel to the military, when we say things like how you know, the defense budget is too big or the defense budget is too small or how big should it be, I was like, well, that's really the wrong question, right? The question is, well, what do we want the military to do? And the question for policing should be the same question. It shouldn't be, let's just take away money randomly. It should be, what do we want police to do? What do we want other people to do? Who's doing what now? If there are capabilities outside of policing that don't currently exist, how do we build them? How long is it going to take? What investments do we need to make? And, and I do think that that conversation is one that people have a really hard time getting to. And that is a conversation, you know, that is, as I said, I think it's where you see common ground between people who think we should abolish the police and police officers themselves. That when you get to a conversation that's not, you're bad, we're good, you should just not exist. And that's what police hear when they hear abolish the police. If, if instead you get to a conversation about, 
let's talk about public safety. Let's talk about what that means to you. Let's talk about what that means to residents of this community. Let's see if we can have a common vision of what public safety means and how we get there from here. And then let's make a plan. And it's probably not going to be a one-year plan. It's going to be a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, maybe even a 20-year plan. How do we get there from here? She ends on a positive note. Uh, the last paragraph, which I've called untangled, um, suggests that she brings her life together, her different lives as a professor, as a mother, as a daughter, um, and as a policewoman at an event at Georgetown University where she gave a speech. Uh, she quotes, I, I'm quoting her the last couple of sentences in the book. Everything was beaming up at me and I felt a sudden surge of joyous vertigo, all my worlds finally converging. So in spite of the slightly dark nature of the book, um, I, I, I was encouraged, perhaps even reinsured, uh, that Rosa ends Tangled Up in Blue, untangled, uh, on a positive note. But but yeah, I am an opt I'm an optimist. I'm always an optimist. And and one of the things, as you noted earlier, that, that came out of this experience for me was was helping together with some of my colleagues at Georgetown, together with some of my colleagues in the DC Police Department, uh, starting several programs uh, that are intended to change how we think about policing. And one of those programs is something called the Police for Tomorrow Fellowship. Sounds really corny. It is. I, I name is corny. Uh, but we take young police officers in D.C. and we bring them to Georgetown for really intensive workshops on what I think it was the hardest questions in policing, you know, around race, around violence, around poverty, just and, and just the big questions. What is policing for? You know, what is the history of policing? What is the role of policing? What should it be? And we bring them into discussions with community activists, with local high school kids, with our law students, with scholars, you know, all kinds of people. And, and, you know, again, this sounds corny too, but the, the discussions are kind of amazing. You know, that they argue with, with each other, they argue with the guest speakers, they cry, people get very passionate. Um, and it really changes how people think. It can change how our young officers think, it can change how others who are talking to them think. And, and seeing these young officers come out of these programs and, and you know they're pretty amazing when they start too i don't mean to imply that we give them this wonderful thing that they couldn't have gotten on their own but just seeing these terrific people and there are terrific people who go into policing people who want to be change agents from within you know seeing these people having these really difficult conversations in a really thoughtful way gives me a lot of hope that the future of policing is going to be happier than in the past You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.